Thanks for joining us on the Museum Revealed podcast. This episode was recorded using Skype, so you may hear a bit of background noise, which we like to call atmosphere. We hope you enjoy this episode too, so let's get started. Welcome to the Museum Reveal podcast, brought to you by the Queensland Museum Network. Join me, Dr. Rob Bell, as we chat to people that make museums so fascinating, from curators to scientists and researchers. We dive deep in conversations with these storytellers. They inspire us to be curious about our past, make sense of the present, and help us consider the future. We're joined now from the Museum of Tropical Queensland by Dr. Espen Knutsen, who's going to tell us all about paleontology, and specifically, I'm interested in... Obviously, you go out looking for fossils. I think every very small child knows what a paleontologist sort of does. But tell me, how much time do you spend out looking for fossils? And I suppose we want to follow the journey of that fossil. So I suppose let's start with how much time of your year do you spend out in the field looking for the fossils? Not enough, unfortunately. <laughs> I would prefer to spend most of the year out there. But here in, in northern Queensland in particular, there's only certain times of the year that are really conducive for doing this sort of work. Uh, you can't really go out in the wet season because you risk getting stuck out there and not being able to come home. Mainly focused around sort of the May, June, July, August, September period. Uh, we go out for uh, as long as we can, uh, normally a couple of weeks at a time, and uh, go to different localities. So we sort of scouted in advance or looked at on maps on Google Earth or whatever, and uh, uh, we might go collecting fossils that we found previously, or we might just go out and, and, and search for, for, for new, new fossils. So you, you'll use technology like Google Earth to scout new fields? Yeah, it's certainly uh, revolutionized the way, way we can work, wow. because we can actually see what the ground is, or well, you know, sort of see what the ground's going to look like before we go go to a place. It's hard to tell from a, from a top of a map whether there's going to be vegetation cover or whether it's going to be scree, covered with scree or, or soil or something like that. Because what we really want is uh, fresh rock outcrop that we can find fossils sort of sticking out of the rock, yeah, staring us on the, in the face sort of thing for the best, and that's, that'll give the best sort of preservation that we can get. All right, so let's see, you're out there, you've found the first little bit of fossil poking out from the rock. What happens next? Yeah, well, what we uh, like to do then is do a sort of little test dig just to see, uh, because what might happen is that what we see might just be the sort of the tail end of the fossil and everything else has eroded away hundreds or thousands of years earlier and it's gone long gone. Uh, or it might be just the start of the fossil and the rest is sort of still going into the side of the hill. The rest is all there. So what we want to do is uh, quickly just uh, sort of take off a little bit of the top layer above the fossil and carefully brush our way down and just sort of see what the fossil does as, as it goes into the hill if it can give us any clues uh, of whether it's likely to contain more or if it's uh, if it's the last bit of the fossil sitting in the rock. So we want to do that before we commit to making a, a much larger excavation, uh, which would, we would be doing after that, taking off a whole heap of more rock and expanding the quarry, uh, depending on the size of the fossil. If you're talking like a marine reptile, this is saw about five metres long. Uh, you might need a, a five metre long hole or maybe uh, three, four metres wide. And depending on the slope of the hill as well, we might be removing 
anywhere from two to five, six meters of uh, of rock on top over the top of it as well. Wow! So with those sort of quantities, I, mean, I always picture a paleontologist with a tiny hammer and a paintbrush. But you must <laughs> at times have fairly industrial equipment out there. Sometimes, if you're lucky, you can get industrial equipment in there, like tractors or front end loaders. You might be able to get in. Uh, I've never been on any of those sort of excavations. I've always uh, been in the places where you can't get anything in and everything has to be done by hand. Yep. So you end up moving, you know, uh, several tens of tons of rock by hand uh, while you're out there for the time it takes uh, to dig these things out. And also what we obviously like is to once we've extracted the uh, fossil, we fill in the hole afterwards. So there's uh, minimal scarring in the, in, the, in the environment of what we've done. So when you are extracting the fossil, and it obviously sounds like it's fairly time-consuming in itself, it's coming out usually encased in some sort of rock? Yeah, so uh, especially for these marine uh, animals that I normally work on, they're often in, uh, preserved in shale, which is uh, the uh, fossilised, if you want, or lithified mud, mud that was the ocean floor back in the day. Mm-hmm. It's now turning to what we call mudstone or shale, which is a fine-grained sort of rock, often dark, uh, dark grey or black. And can be quite flaky, uh, which makes it easier to uh, prepare the fossil afterwards, and also easier to dig in because you don't need uh, you don't need to cut the rock with a rock saw or anything like that to get things out. You can just sort of use a shovel and a pick and trench around or de- excavate the area that you're interested in. Definitely uh, time-consuming, but very dependent on the rock type that you, know, you find the fossil in. So you'd have to take then the the pieces. So if, for example, you have, as you said, a complete plesiosaur fossil or mostly complete. You're taking it out in sections, and do you keep those sections together? Essentially, you're removing a giant jigsaw puzzle encased in shale or some sort of rock. What's the process like with that? (laughs) Yes, there's two uh, main categories of uh, vertebrate fossils. So there's the ones that are disarticulate or disarticulated, uh, which are the ones where all the bones have been sort of jumbled up uh, compared to what they were like in life and life position. And then you have the uh, articulated ones where it looked like the skeleton or the animal just died and all the soft tissues are gone, but the bones are exactly where they were originally. So with this articulated one, sometimes it's easier to just collect the individual bones or sections or areas containing a lot of bone. But if you have articulated ones, particularly if you have a five meter long animal, then you can't encase that whole thing in one so-called plaster jacket and transport it because that would weigh tens of tons. So what we do is uh, we do a bit of uh, spinal surgery sometimes and we uh, remove a couple of the vertebrae in sections uh, where we would like to cut the animal in, in sections and we record obviously everything precisely where they came from and label everything. So when we get back in the lab and everything's prepared out, we can nicely slot these, reinsert these um, parts of the spine or whatever that we might have removed to sort of split the skeleton up. You don't really want the jackets to be much more than about one square metre because then they just become... Uh, uh, unmanageable to handle. So yeah, you mentioned a, a plaster jacket. So what exactly does that involve? Is that a way of sort of keeping it all together until you get it back to the preparation? Yeah, that's right. So these fossils are normally quite fragile, so you can't just put them on a shovel or grab them out of the rock and sort of chuck them in the back of the ute and off you go. You've got to carefully excavate it from the top so you get the extent of the animal as it, as it is preserved. And then you got to decide where do you want to uh, sort of cut it up and, and make plaster jackets. And plaster jackets are, they consist of firstly a layer of, I like to use wet toilet paper because it sort of supports the bone really nicely. So it's really a, a layer between the fossil and the plaster that you put on top because if you just start putting plaster right on top, you'll never see the fossil again. 
It'll just be, you'll never get it out of that plaster. <laughs> and then you've got a whole other job for a header for you to find that off. Uh, so you want to have a layer, some, some people like to use aluminium foil or newspapers. I personally prefer toilet paper. Wet toilet paper, and so dab that on there with a wet paintbrush. Then you put uh, wet hessian soaked in uh, in plaster over the top there, and you sort of just build up a layer of of uh, plaster about a few centimeters thick, depending on the size of the jacket. That'll sort of encase the rock and the fossil inside it, uh, as a safe cocoon that you can transport um, back to the museum. All you need to do is so you do that top layer first, and then you got to match somehow to the underside. Uh, and to do that, you got to trench around the whole uh, fossil and uh, plaster the sides of the rock until you sort of learn, you keep undercutting or trenching around it until you're left with a, almost like a mushroom-shaped uh, uh, thing with plaster on the top. And then you can flip it over to the other side, you can cut away the excess plaster that you put on and sort of dig your way down to the fossil from the underside as well. And then you put another layer of toilet paper and plaster and hessian on the, over the top on that side. So there you have the fully cocooned fossil that's ready to be transported back to the museum. Well, I can already tell that there's going to be a lot of time and effort just in getting that one jacket ready and, and on the back of the ute to transport. So uh, let's say you've got now the whole plesiosaur in its various parts, in its jackets, in the back of the ute. All of that goes to somewhere to then, I suppose, get the fossils out of the jackets and out of the rock? That's right. So then it goes to the museum and uh, the lab there. And we've got to get a saw and cut open the plaster jacket uh, to reveal, uh, reveal the fossil inside. And then someone, maybe myself or a volunteer or a student, will sit there for a few months and sort of pick away at this uh, rock to try and remove all the rock away from around the fossil. And as you go along, all you want to do is stabilise the fossil uh, as you sort of dig your way down because all this rock is sort of supported, nicely hugged the fossil uh, so it doesn't fall apart. But as you're removing the rock, uh, the, the fossil might break apart or, or collapse. What you want to do is put some sort of adhesive uh, across the fossil to to stabilise it so that, that doesn't happen. But as you go along, you sort of keep adding adhesive to it. And this adhesive is very important. It has to be reversible. So you can't just soak it in super glue because if you make a mistake, as you know, with super glue, it can be pretty hard <laughs> hard to get back back uh, apart again. So we have these special adhesives so you can add uh, ethanol or so alcohol or acetone too to dissolve again, and you can just redo it if you have to. So then that sounds like quite a painstaking job in itself. You end up with all of the parts of, let's say, the plesiosaur again. Is mm. it simply then a matter of, I suppose, putting it back together and working out how it should have looked? Yeah, so, so if we had, if we, let's say we had an articulated one in the field and we had to mm -hmm. split it up, then uh, it would already, all the bones would already be in the position they were in in life, so there's no, uh, no guesswork needed really because everything was recorded, so you can just put everything back together the way it was. If you have a disarticulated specimen where all the bones are sort of jumbled up in a pile, then it can be a bit more tricky. Uh, I can imagine. Yeah, so there's certain things you can look at, uh, for instance, in the spine. Uh, the spine or the vertebrae from the neck look different from the ones in the, in the torso and are different from the ones in the tail. Uh, the front and, and uh, rear flippers look different uh, and that sort of thing. And obviously the ribs look different as well, so you can sort of... Yeah, guesstimate where they're supposed to be in the body and uh, and get an idea of uh, which parts uh, are preserved and which parts are, um, they belong to in the body that way. And then obviously we can use other known species from other places as well to sort of fill in the gaps. And I suppose if you've got a, a disarticulated skeleton, sometimes it must be hard to know whether you've got a new species or not until you get enough of the bones out to be able to compare to known species. 
Yeah, sometimes. So uh, often what you want is you definitely want some part of the head. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because the head is uh, a lot of, it contains a lot of different specialized bones. So there's a lot of variability in the bones that can tell us uh, how it might differ from another species. Uh, but we also want some of the body because otherwise, which is a problem you always have everywhere in the world with species, uh, any animal that has a long neck with a small head on the end, uh, is very seldom find both of them together because the head will, they sort of, when they die, they will float and float, sort of what they call it. So they die and they start uh, decomposing and inflate and they float around in the water. And as they're rotting, the head will be one of the first things to fall off or get eaten off. Uh, <laughs> so often what you'll find is a body with no head or you might just find a head with no body. And uh, that's the problem we have here in Queensland as well. We've got two long-necked species of plesiosaur and one with a body and one without a body. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know whether that head that we have with no body belongs to the body with no head, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, well, that's why you keep hunting, right? That's right. We've got to find that one little Rosetta stone that has both. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So is there a stage beyond this, I guess, once you've put the bones back together, the, is, there, is there a way to preserve this digitally, I suppose? In the last couple of uh, decades, Things like 3D modeling have become much more popular and much more advanced than it's been. And uh, in paleontology as well, we've obviously found a use for that. So uh, we can make 3D models of all our fossils and create a virtual copy, So, which is not just good for uh, showing people all of how cool this is, but you also can get with a virtual copy, you ensure that you have a record of that uh, fossil for the future. So if anything should happen to the fossil, and I'm not saying that it would, but it does happen that fossils go missing or they get destroyed, uh, whether it's a natural natural disaster or whatever, they might get destroyed. And then it's good to have at least a virtual copy to ensure that uh, we have a record of exactly how that uh, fossil looked like. But also it allows me to, for instance, easily collaborate with someone from across the world, another plesiosaur researcher. I can say, hey, look at this plesiosaur we have. Would you like to work together on that? Uh, because they might have something similar from there, and we can both sort of sit there and study the same specimen without actually being with a specimen, uh, which is a very, very good way of doing it. And then we have CT scanning, so you can look inside specimens and look at the internal structures. You can 3D print uh, things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see without destroying the specimen that are inside. For instance, a brain case. A lot of studies have been done recently on Dinosaur brain, uh, brains, for instance, so you can print out the, the space that was inside the head of the dinosaur to figure out exactly how the brain looked. And uh, from there, we can sort of deduce uh, which centers were more enlarged. For example, did the T-Rex had a large uh, olfactory or smelling center in its um, brain, suggesting that it had a really good sense of smell, and so on and so on. So very, a lot of cool things you can do with this new 3D technology. Yeah, I think that's great that we're bringing dinosaurs into the 21st century. Particularly love the fact that you can essentially send them to the cloud. That's that's, yep. that's great. <laughs> uh, look, Dr. Espen Knudsen, thank you so much for joining us from the Museum of Tropical Queensland um, for our Museum Reveal podcast. Uh, what did you uncover this episode? Interested in learning more? Well, follow the Queensland Museum on social media at QLD Museum or head to our website, qm.qld.gov.au. And while you're there, sign up to the e-news list so you can stay up to date with absolutely everything. And until next time, stay curious.